why don't we do this measurement of culture? Let's measure our culture before transformation and after transformation. And let's see if the digital tool that we're going to develop is going to improve and speed up change management. Hi, I'm Davey Green, and this is the first episode of Series 18 of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. You just heard Dr. Jacqueline Lee, Chief Human Resources Officer at the Singapore University of Technology and Design, talking about the role of data and analytics in the culture transformation program at the university. While technology plays a big part in culture transformation at the university, Jacqueline remained ever cognizant of the people at the heart of the transformation and ensuring that their diverse values were understood and respected. While the organization is still relatively young, culture transformation is about bringing the people within the company together in a way that ensures their values are aligned. You're going to have senior academics or people that have been very successful in a very traditional university environment. So uh, so when you're going to have people from all walks of life and people that are, have been exposed to working in very different environments, uh, definitely there will be diversity of views and not everyone thinks the same. Throughout this episode, Jacqueline and I discuss how to attract a diverse pool of international talent to a brand new university. We talk about bridging the practitioner-academia divide to develop a tool to measure culture transformation. We look at establishing a data-driven workforce planning process at the university and overcoming initial resistance by establishing a task force. And we talk about upskilling HR professionals to become more digitally literate and analytically capable. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Jacqueline Lee, Chief Human Resources Officer at the Singapore University of Technology Design to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Welcome to the show, Jacqueline. It's great to have you on. Can you provide listeners with a a brief introduction to to you and your role um, at the university? Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Thank you for listening in. I'm uh, Jacqueline here. I'm the Chief Human Resources Officer for the Singapore University of Technology and Design. Uh, In my role, I manage the entire human resource um, operations as well as um, organization development. Uh, And that also includes the new role that I've been appointed recently, which is the Incident Commander for COVID Operations. So it has been a challenging, you know, two years for me, the last two years. But otherwise, you know, I've been, uh, you know, having a really fun time at the university, been here for the last 12 years and, you know, and the work is still really exciting. Thank you. Thanks, Jacqueline. And I think you highlighted something that's been top of the agenda for for Chief Human Resources Officers and their teams around the world for the last 20 months or so, Um, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, how has that, you you talked about an an additional role as the incident commander for for COVID. How has that changed your role um, um, within within the organisation since obviously the pandemic started? you know, I think with COVID-19, it has really made HR a very crucial job. Uh, actually, human resource leaders are now called to be able to integrate sustainability and be able to look at integration and be able to bring the workforce together during this COVID you know, uh, pandemic. And I found that as an HR leader, uh, my role has really evolved to not just running HR, running OD, your usual run-of-the-mill HR functions, but really, um, you're moving beyond that to really think about the safety of the workforce, the health and safety. 
you have to think about how to uh, ensure that business continuity, uh, you know, uh, carries on uh, despite having to go into team A, team B. And you have to ensure that, uh, uh, you know, you have to look at policies, you know, because there's so much policies, uh, there's so much changes. And also getting your workforce, uh, you know, uh, uh, prepared for changes because, you know, like, for example, we work very closely with the Ministry of Education and policies in mean, educational policies change, you know, every month, right? So it's literally, uh, uh, sometimes I have to execute things within uh, 24 hour turnaround time. So basically, it's basically the speed of operations, ability to not just manage your, your normal functions, but really stretch to go beyond that. Uh, and and uh, I think, of course, of late, the, the whole issue of mental well-being comes into play. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, you know, a lot of organizations around the world, and it's a good thing, but, but during the crisis, you know, um, we've really been prioritizing employee safety and, and, and well-being. And obviously, HR is is been at the forefront of that. Do you see that? You know, do you see that something that's gonna that gonna continue? That organisations are gonna, you know, I'm talking about organisations generally now, and what maybe what you're seeing in the region. Do you think organisations are gonna pay more attention now to mental health um, and well being moving forward? I, I certainly think so because um, the last two years, I think uh, a lot of people have gone through a lot of mental stress. Uh, and I realized that mental resilience is so important in today's world. Uh, first, you're, you, you, we were all hit by this digital transformation. There's so much changes happening to every job, every profession. And then you got hit by COVID-19, which has essentially accelerated uh, digitization by, I would say, five to six, seven times the speed that it was going about. So because of all these changes, I think people are in, unable to cope uh, so if you ask me, I think mental well-being is not just for now, but in the future, because we're going to be increasingly living in a very dynamic and changing world. So yes, the role of uh, HR in managing employee mental resilience, uh, employee well-being is going to be, I would say, the employee experience 4.0. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we will delve into that, I think, a little bit more during during our conversation. Yeah. You mentioned that you've been at the university for, for 12 years. It was actually, the university was founded in, in 2009. I'd love to, and I'm sure listeners will as well, I'd love to hear about your experience of, of building the HR department at the university from scratch and, and some of the challenges that, that you faced over the last 12 years to do that. Well, I mean, it's 13 years of uh, history, but I'll try and make it really compact. But uh, when I first started in 2009, I remember the first day walking into the office. It was just a table, literally a table. There was nothing, there was really nothing. So I kind of asked myself, my goodness, how I'm going to get from here to uh, our, our mission of wanting to be uh, you know, the, the best university in the world for the design intensive education. You know? So I think uh, uh, what we did was in the initial days, uh, the first few pieces of work that was really important was bringing in international talent. Uh, because universities are all about talent. And of course, in order to attract talent, you need to have a really compelling compensation and benefits scheme. That means a, a really an international reward strategy. And of course, uh, the third thing is the story. Uh, uh, what's the story you're going to tell candidates? How are we going to build the talent attraction? Why would people come to an unknown university? So those were the initial days uh, where we spent a lot of time thinking through those issues. 
and how do we begin? You know, so uh, I would say the very first piece I did was the total reward management piece. Uh, we worked with a with a top consulting company to come up with that piece, and with a compelling total reward strategy, we were able to take that package to go out internationally to recruit the talents. But of course, uh, you know, um, maybe as uh, as we you know speak along the way, I can share a lot more uh, about the entire talent strategy. There was a lot of components, and also we were fortunate enough to have MIT as our partner, so that became one of our, you know, our value propositions. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I get a great, a, a great magnet, I guess, for talent as well. Actually, you know, we have a lot. Most of the listeners to the the show work working in HR, working in in, in many of them working in global organisations, and maybe looking at ways to attract international talent. You know, I'd love to sh- if you could share with listeners some of the strategies obviously reward was, was was one some of your specific strategies for attracting uh, top international talent okay um when we were trying to attract international talent one of the first pieces we did was to think about uh, what kind of talents we want so we did a talent stratification exercise okay if we were to go out there and get say 50 top faculty to join us we were very clear that we wanted uh, a group that were really fresh uh, top High, uh, kind of, kind of up-and-coming high potentials that are probably young uh, in the early 30s. These are, will be your fresh PhD holders. Then we were very cognizant of the fact that we had to, to bring we had to bring in senior academics. So people who probably are very renowned in their field, this will be probably your 10 or 15% of your talent stratification. And of course, the rest were other specialized functions. So we were very clear the kind of talent we wanted. And we came up with a uh, very very clear brand values and core values of what we want in those talents. So once we were very clear about the talent strategy and and we were able to map the talent strategy to the total reward strategy, then we came up with the entire talent plan. So we said that in order to get international talent, we had to go out to the world. We can't be sitting in Singapore, right? So we said, okay, why we need to do an international talent uh, roadshow. So I began traveling for almost three, intensively traveling for the first three years. Uh, went all over the world. Uh, and uh, one of the things we did, so three things we did to attract talent. The story was that they were, have an opportunity to work with a startup university, a blank sheet of paper. There's nothing there you get to create. So, and then the second story we told them was that there's an opportunity to work in a very multidisciplinary environment where innovation happens and design thinking. And of course, the third proposition was the MIT connection. They had a chance to be exposed to the best in the world for research collaboration. And of course, uh, along with that, we were uh, kind of very fortunate to partner with the Economic Development Board. So we brought uh, the EDB folks along with us to sell Singapore as a destination. Singapore is very attractive as as a destination. So we spin a very interesting story. And whenever we, we do a recruitment roadshow, it was never going there to do an interview. It was about running a seminar. And the seminars are, are around the topics of the smart nation. Uh, what is it like, uh, you know, to be able to, uh, you know, work in a multidisciplinary environment. So we always spin interesting seminar topics and we run like a networking event. And we'll invite, we'll reach out to entire networks of people to come for the event. And we will always uh, get our president to come along or our provost 
uh, and they get to meet the top uh, senior management of the organization. And then we will sell the story. And then we will get EDB to sell Singapore as a destination. And that, that's a package deal. And we were incredibly successful with those roadshows. Yeah. Right, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I mean, fortunate to have been to Singapore a few times. And you're right, it's a great destination. And I know it's a, it's a magnet for international uh, talent. Um, in fact, that's right. the show's producer, Ian, actually spent several years living there um, and working uh, for, for, for his company <laughs> yes, at the time. Yes, he told me that, yeah. <laughs> um, so... You know, as well as obviously bringing the right talent into the organization and obviously that focus, you know, the focus on the strategy first and the values and then bringing the, the right people in. You've obviously done a lot of work. Um, and again, that blank piece of paper for you, I guess, as a, as a CHRO, a lot of work to, to develop the culture uh, and accelerate a culture transformation at the university. You know, let's talk a little bit about that program now. Why was a culture transformation necessary at such a relatively young institution? So even though the institution is young, you're still going to be recruiting people from all walks of life, right? You're going to have senior academics or people that have been very successful in a very traditional university environment. So, uh, so when you're going to have people from all walks of life and people that are, have been exposed to working in very different environments, uh, definitely there will be diversity of views and not everyone thinks the same. So it, and also everyone have their own personal values. So we decided at that point that it was important, uh, to have a culture alignment exercise. It was important that, uh, when we recruited this, uh, an entire groups of people into the organization and, uh, we had a very international talent pool that we had people from uh, almost over 40 countries and also the ethnic and, you know, cultural diversity. So that's why the, the, the culture alignment and uh, it's a very important project that we have to embark on to get everyone to be onto the same page. Uh, that was why in the initial first uh, five to seven years of my time there, I spent a lot of time uh, with culture transformation projects. Yeah, and, and I guess it's, as you said, that it's good to have that diversity of views, of course, and diversity of, of experience, but it, it, I guess the challenge is to bring that together and then and then determine the culture for 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 the university because what you don't want I guess is lots of different cultures you want to try and create that that yes, unique right. that unique culture for the university itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so part of that culture journey, I understand, was using research data to understand the evidence and and, and impact of uh, a transfer transformation occurring. I'd love to hear. I'm sure our listeners as well. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. And, you know, how, how do you go about measuring culture? Um, and what are some of the specific success m- metrics that, 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 that you use? So um, kind of the, is, is a really interesting story. So when I began on the culture project, we started with values. And then we said, hey, look, we, we have got to start measuring culture. And how do we measure culture? So it was about at that time that I kind of got interested in doing a PhD. So I happened to meet uh, two interesting mentors uh, from the University of Twente in the Netherlands. And they, these are computer science professors. You know, I said, well, what on earth am I doing with a computer science professor? I said, hey, look, I'm interested to do a culture transformation project, but I want to use quantitative data. It's not just about, you know, fluffy, what is this culture, fluffy stuff about culture, but we want to make it into a science, into make it data-driven. So they say, why don't you work with us to, you know, look at uh, using a, a design methodology that is grounded in software engineering? 
and also let's look at using digital tools for transformation. So uh, I began to be so interested in that topic. And then they said, okay, let's turn this into a PhD dissertation. So we kind of started to design this whole thing, said, look, you know, uh, why don't we do this measurement of culture? Let's measure our culture before transformation and after transformation. And let's see if the digital tool that we're going to develop is going to improve and speed up change management. So we started with this uh, tool, a culture measurement tool called the Organization Culture Diagnostic Instrument. Uh, it's, a, it's a developed by two professors in the U.S. So we started to uh, look at this uh, tool and we said, why don't we look at current culture? And let's look at desired culture. That means between the current and desired culture, let's measure the gap. So uh, the gap analysis is going to be what we're going to do to try and close the culture gap. So what we did was at that time is to basically uh, talk to several software companies and we found this interesting company called Filter. So they say, hey, why don't you use my tool? It's, uh, you know, to, uh, for part of your research, we're going to give it to you for free. So we talked to this Dutch company and uh, that came up with this entire thing called the CATM2 and methodology, which is in my book, uh, uh, Accelerating Organization Culture Change. So basically what this tool does is, interestingly, so the tool has a portion for measuring culture. So you do a survey of your current culture with the tool. And you do a survey uh, of your desired culture with the tool, and then we have a gap analysis. So what the tool does is that it has a group decision support system. So we use the tool for digital brainstorming. So you might ask, Jacqueline, there's so many tools for digital brainstorming, but this is an interestingly and very intelligent tool. The tool is, allows you to be able to um, do group decision support. That means you can have 50 people in the decision room and if I have 50 ideas for change management, all 50 can input the ideas at the same time and they can vote for the best ideas and they can critique the ideas. And what the system does is to be able to rank the ideas, the top three to four ideas for you in a matter of like 40, 40, 30 to 45 minutes. So that means what you do in a normal culture transformation discussion might take you three hours, but this tool takes you half an hour to 45 minutes. So it speeds up culture transformation two to three times. So I've collected quite solid data. Uh, we did a lot of experiments, experiments within the university and we had uh, very robust data to show that the tool works in culture change. When we come back in just a moment, Jacqueline talks to us about establishing a workforce planning process at the university. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by Hula. Hula Hub is a personalized digital workplace solution designed to boost productivity, save you time, increase employee engagement, and help enable a more connected culture, no matter where your people are. After decades of uninspiring workforce platforms, Hula Hub is the go-to platform for leaders wanting to meet the needs of their employees, boost their well-being, enable more flexible styles of working, and forever improve the way we work. It's a revolutionary way to connect everything we use on a daily basis and access it all with just two clicks, keeping you organised and saving millions of pounds in wasted time. To learn more, visit hula.io. That's H-U-L-E-R dot I-O.
Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast with Dr. Jacqueline Lee, Chief Human Resources Officer at the Singapore University of Technology and Design. Now, back to the conversation. And you said you talk about that in your, your book, which is organization, sorry, accelerating organization culture change. And then That's right. Yeah. Okay. So we'll put a we'll put a link to that in the in the in the transcript that goes with okay. uh, with the podcast as well. We may we may come back to that as well. What okay, was the sure. what was the um love to hear what was the reaction of of, of some of the people working at, at the university around using the, the the technology to support this culture transformation? Um okay, so it's quite interesting. I started with the most senior group. I got all my bosses and the entire senior management team into a seminar where I said, I'm going to use this tool on you. You're going to be my guinea pigs. <laughs> and they said, okay, sure, let's do it. And they had so much fun with it. They really enjoyed it. And we came up with fantastic ideas for change. You know, the ideas later were to become really uh, embedded into our strategic planning as really plans to bring the university to the next level. So it was it was really fun convincing the senior group, and then of course after that we went down to each level of, uh, to the ground, and we even did it with the students. You know, we got it with the uh, the first group of pioneering students that came in. We tested on them, so I collected data from students, from faculty, from uh, employees, and from the senior management. So I would say the reception to the tool was very very positive. And it seems entirely apt that that a, that a university of technology and design needs using technology to to help support its its culture transformation. Precisely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and then and and obviously measuring culture is something that I think a lot of organisations struggle to do. And the fact that you were able to get that baseline of, of where you were, um, and as you said, understand the gaps of where you wanted to be, and then actually use the technology to support the transformation to, to, to close that gap. And, and are, you still using the, are you still using the tool to, to measure culture and make sure that you're, you're still where you, where you want to be? Or is it, is it, is it a continual evolution that, that, that you're on? Culture transformation doesn't stop there. So you have to continuously measure culture. So what happened was after that initial exercise, we said, why don't we give ourselves two years to see whether what we are doing is closing the culture gap? So what I did was, after two years, I said, let's do another measurement. So we sent another big survey out there, and we found that we managed to close uh, the culture gap. So there were two big gaps. We managed to close one of them. The other one still had some work. So we said, why don't we now work on these other gaps? So we went on another round of change management exercise to close the other gap. But uh, to answer your question, yes, we are continuing to use the tool. Uh, we we are using it now for culture conversations. Fascinating, really, really, really good stuff. And 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 as you said, something that continues to to evolve. So let's shift a little bit now to talk about workforce planning um, at the university. You've done a, I know you've done a huge amount of work to to understand every single job across the university and the potential for automating specific tasks and activities. Can you tell us a little bit more about that process? It sounds fascinating. So somewhere, you know, as we began to grow the university, so it came to a point the organization uh, grew quite substantially. And, you know, as organizations grow, you're going to have a lot more layers of processes, a lot more bureaucracy. And we kind of suddenly realized that we had a huge administrative group of staff. So the, the, the layers of management became thicker and there was a lot more bureaucracy. So we said that, look, uh, in order to optimize the workforce, it's 
now time, you know, to to start thinking about how do we um uh look at the right sizing of the workforce, the right cost and the right skills. So I began to speak to my senior management, the president. I said, look, if you are if we are going to be sustainable for the next five to ten years, we have to start looking at workforce planning. So I had the blessings from him to begin on this project. So what is interesting is um we started to I started to kind of uh talk to the management team. I said we need to collect data. Uh first we need to collect data on each and every job. So uh collecting data on each and every job means uh it's a very onerous task. I literally had to convince everyone in the organization, look, I'm gonna be looking at what you're doing. You have to list down your process steps, you have to part you have to cooperate with me. I had a lot of resistance in the initial days, but I had to uh, form a task force to convince everyone that this was the right thing to go. And people were just afraid of losing their jobs. Oh, what if I write all this task and realize that what I'm doing is redundant, I might lose my job. So there was a lot of uh, management, convincing, managing them and convincing them that, we're, in fact, this is going to help you because we're going to help you automate your processes. So we began to do, a, so the, the, the data collection lasted six intensive months. We collected thousands, we got thousands of data points. So with that massive amount of data, we managed, we got a consultant to come in to analyze the entire data set. And from the analysis of the data set, we had wonderful, wonderful insights from the data set. Uh, and that came up with three key imperatives. We found out that 25% of our work processes could be automated by information systems. We found out that we were doing a lot of uh, unnecessary process steps in what we're doing. We found out that uh, we found out that we lack data analytics capability in most functions to be able to use data for work. And then we found out that our procurement steps were way too long. So with these four insights that we derived, we actually began a project to really improve things. So I am happy to report today that we have uh, come up with a new system for procurement. It's a bespoke system to reduce process steps. We have put the entire workforce to data analytics training. We have formed a central analytics data analytics committee to look at university-wide data science projects. Uh, we have also uh, embarked on a uh, IT transformation exercise. Uh, all our systems are going through a major overhaul. Uh, so these are things, wonderful things that come out from studying data. You see, the idea is for a human resource profession, we have to be very computational. If we were to go to the board and go to our bosses without being able to substantiate with data, it's very hard to have a seat at the table. But once I was able to pull all this entire data set, it was so easy to to you know, uh, you know, follow up on the next steps and to ask for resources. Yeah, I mean, a fascinating and a really great example, as you said, of of using data, people data to help transform the way the the organisation's operating and 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 potentially help employees as well. Because I'm guessing that, um, and love to hear more. Obviously, you found that you know, you said twenty five percent of of processes could be automated, and I guess that's. Uh, helping people overcome the fear. It's not necessarily the job that's going to be automated. It's certain tasks that are going to be automated, which frees up time to, 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 to do other, to other, do other things, which maybe are more value adding. Is that, is that some of the, the, some of the findings that, 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 that you, that you, um, that you uncovered? Yes. Yes. Because a lot of the tasks that 
uh, you know, that people were doing were tasks that was really no value add. Like, for example, the process steps. Could I do these things in one step instead of three steps? So when we were doing that kind of data collection, when we were able to look at each job and collect those data in a step-by-step process, then you're able to look at the steps you can eliminate. So, but without the data, you couldn't do that, you see. And, and I guess it's like growing pains of an organization that's, you know, as you said, founded in 2009, probably growing in terms of faculty and, 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 other, and other staff, more students. And, and it's, just, it's just as an organization grows, it needs to really be doing the exercise that you did and just understanding, are we being efficient? Have we, have we got too many process steps when we could have one? Can we automate certain tasks? That's right. That's right. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now let's go back to the conversation with Jacqueline, where we discuss measuring the impact of the university's HR upskilling initiative. Now, I, I love what you just hear there. I, I heard they trained everyone in the organization around data and analytics. Now, I know, like me, Jacqueline, you're passionate about using analytics in HR. We, we've both spoken um, on, on the same panel, I think, a, a couple of events um, held in, in, in the Asia-Pacific region. Um, I'd love to hear more about your decision to, to train every HR professional as well to become more data savvy and analytically capable. Why is it important, in your opinion, for every HR professional to, to learn these skills? You know, I started developing a passion for data and analytics while I was doing my PhD research. I kind of realized the power of computational data and the rigor of research really helped me to focus on fact-based evidence in managing projects, you know. So, and I just kind of realized that this is really important for HR professionals. And a lot of people I talked to in the HR profession were really struggling with even producing uh, reports that are, you know, uh, you know, uh, fact-based and data-driven. So I kind of realized that, you know, uh, with the knowledge or the skills I've learned from my PhD, why don't I turn this around and equip the profession with skills in data analytics? That kind of started in about five years ago. I got interested in this and, and it was about this time that we started the SUTD Academy for adult learning. So I kind of uh, uh, speak to my provost and he says, why don't you become a senior fellow with the academy and help us to start the digital HR track? And that's how we started the entire digital HR programs. Uh, today, we have programs in data science, agile thinking. Uh, we have, uh, uh, we have uh, also programs in design thinking, we have programs in HR tech. Uh, we have uh, advanced and intermediate data science courses. And uh, I must say that we have, the academy and myself have probably brought thousands of HR professionals to these programs. And it's just so rewarding, yeah. It's so rewarding, yeah. And what's great about that, you're not just helping the HR professionals at the university, you're helping the HR professionals, you know, in, in other organizations as well, um, get these these much-needed skills. And I know from from the regular trips, that, well, not so regular in the last couple of years, but the trips that I've made to Singapore, the appetite 
um, um, in the HR community for learning more about analytics and, and data is is, re- is real. Um, but the gap sometimes between that the appetite and actually realizing those skills it can be quite significant. And I guess you're you're helping to close those with with, with what you're doing. Yeah, precisely. Mm, you know, and it, it's I, it's a part of a sort of you know again. I'd be interested actually as you brought that training in potentially for, for your own HR uh, team. Did you face any resistance from, were there any data skeptics in your team or uh, did you manage to convince them with, uh, with your experience from your PhD? I think, I think a lot of the people in my team, I have, you know, as young as 20, 20 plus to 60. Uh, I think a lot of times uh, when we were, I was trying to start on this data journey, I had a lot of resistance from the older ones. The younger ones are much more savvy. Uh, I think it takes a lot of time. I spent, in fact, years just convincing them, just talking to them, putting them through courses. It is something that takes time. Uh, I don't think you can change mindset overnight. But I'm very proud to say that today, uh, 90% of my team is computation. They're using Lean Six Sigma tools, statistics, uh, a lot of computational tools uh, to basically produce data for their work. Yeah. So it's a journey. It's a journey. Yeah, it's a, it's a journey. That's, that's really impressive, that is, as well. And, and I think a lot of it, I, I don't know if you found it, a lot of it when I speak to HR professionals is, is, is a little bit of fear. Um, it's, it's, you know, with, this, with the HR training and certifications that, that most organizations have, have produced around the world for, for years, for decades, there's never been anything about statistics and data unless you, you know, unless you're trained to be an IO psychologist or something. So it's almost that it's that fear of the unknown. Is that, is that, is that something that you uh, encountered? Yeah. I mean, fear of the unknown is going to always be there. Uh, a lot of students, I remember uh, one day when I was running a class, uh, a very senior HR professional, she's like the VP of a global, of HR in a global company. And the first thing she walked into the class, I have something to contest. I said, what is it? I have no idea how to run an Excel spreadsheet. I was, of course, uh, a bit uh, kind of shocked. Uh, but I said, no, not to worry. Just sit through my class. And she did wonderfully. At the end of the day, she managed to do three sets of exercises in correlation, analysis, and linear regression. And she came to me and she beamed and she said, you know what? It's not so difficult after all. So it's just helping them to overcome the fear. Many students come to me and say, you know, I'm so frightened, you know, data science, you know, but as they go through it, you know, they realize that hey, it's not so difficult. And because it's taught from an HR person, I'm an HR person, I'm able to relate life stories to them. I make it very relational and we make it really simple for them to understand. Yeah, I think that's the important thing, isn't it? And, and I'd love to, how are you How are you measuring the impact of, of the upskilling initiative for, for, for HR? I mean, I, I guess the proof is in the pudding of the, the work you did around the workforce planning. Uh, to measure, uh, I think to measure what you are doing in the academy might be a little bit tough because uh, we started this training four to five years ago, but some intangible measurements will be, many of my students have come back to me and say that they're using data in their jobs. And many of them have started to implement initiatives. I, I just had a recent student who completed one of my digital HR data science course, and she's actually implementing the principles in the workforce planning projects that she's doing. So the I think the... The I would say the evidence comes in the fact that many of them have gone back to their workplace and implement starting to implement. At least the awareness is there and the skill sets has gone up. Yeah. How does the the teaching? Um. Obviously, you 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 you're training HR professionals across a wide range of of probably levels and uh, and ability and organisations. How's that helping you in your work as well? 
Well, you know, when you're teaching, you have to do a lot of research, right? Uh, I mean, you, you, you yourself, you're you kind of, uh, you know, you're creating a lot of awareness and I believe you're doing a lot of research. So I do a lot of research and, and also when I write books, I will be able to kind of pull a lot of information because when you're writing computational books, you, you kind of have to do the research thing through. So I get a lot of my knowledge and my skills you know, from conducting research, you know, just trying to, you know, just continually learning. And uh, I've been taking also uh, courses online from other universities. So uh, I refresh my knowledge that way. And, and that's something, I mean, you've highlighted something there. I think it's so important in today's world that it doesn't matter if you, you know, if you're, if you're a chief people officer or a chief learning officer or even a CEO, we all need to continuously be learning. All right. Exactly. Yeah. Jacqueline, we're moving to the sort of last question that we've got. And this is something we're asking everyone on this series, and I'm, I'm particularly interested in your perspective on this. Yeah, how can HR help the business identify the, the critical skills for the future? I think it's important to understand the strategy of the business. Um, and for example, in SUTD, we have a growth plan with five strategic trusts. So once you're very clear of the strategic trust, you will need to look at the future skills that are needed and do an inventory of your current skills. So we did this exercise about two years ago. We managed to look at inventory of skills. And what I, I do is that once I see the gap, I, I either go by acquisition, I acquire the talents, or I train or upgrade the skill sets through lifelong learning. So that's why the workforce planning is so critical because one of the things we did in our workforce planning is to look at the skills gap. And then we came up with a very comprehensive three-year capability plan to beef up our capabilities. Yeah, they're really, really good. And, um, you know, you struck on their con that continuous learning. And the most important thing, start with the strategy. Start with the strategy of the business. Understand what the exactly. business is trying to achieve um, rather than just diving into skills for the sake of it. Yeah, exactly. Well, Jacqueline, it's been, it's been great understanding the work that you're doing at the Singapore University of Technology and Design and, and, and also the, the value that you're providing to the HR community through the, uh, the, the, the teaching that you're doing as well. So thanks very much for being a guest on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Uh, we'll let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you uh, and follow you on social media uh, in the copy around the podcast as well. So thank you very much. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and our weekly newsletter at myhrfuture.com. Tune in next week for episode two of this series, where we'll be joined by Ernest Ng, VP Global Employee Success Strategy and People Analytics at Salesforce. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.